Well, good morning, River City. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, grateful to get to join you for worship this morning. If you are new or visiting, especially want to say welcome to you. Uh, we would love to get to know you. I'd love to help you get plugged into the community here at River City. Uh, like John was saying, uh, small groups are one of the best ways to do that. The summer's a great chance to get a part of a small group. Just lots of really low-key relational ways to plug in, whether it's a cookout or last night our small group went to uh, Bellevue to see the water ski show, and it's just like a great time of hanging out and enjoying one another, just getting to know one another. And so small groups are a great place wherever you're at spiritually, and so I just want to invite you into that, uh, and I would encourage you to check that out if you're looking to get involved and get plugged in. So excited as well to continue our summer series. We are spending the summer talking about the attributes of God, and an attribute we've said, it refers to a quality or a characteristic that belongs to someone, and what we've said in our series is that God's attributes, they, they define and describe who he is. In other words, God's attributes, they, they tell us who he is and what he's like. And, and from the beginning, what the reason of our series, that I said that the reason why spending the whole summer studying what feels like theology or just doctrine, the, the idea about who God is and what he's like, learning to think rightly about those things, the, the reason why that matters and why it's worthwhile, why it's so important, is because what we believe always determines what we do. That's true in every area of our lives, and it's true especially with regards to what we believe about God. You see, our behaviors are always the tangible expressions of our beliefs. Again, that's not just true about spiritual things. That's, that's true for every area of our lives. And so when it comes to the spiritual realities, the reality is that when, when, we, when what we do or how we live is out of line with God's word and his will for our lives, the reason why that is ultimately is rooted in, in the fact that we, are either, we either don't know, we've forgotten, or we've refused to believe something that is true about God. And so that's why studying God's attributes isn't just some heady theological, theological exercise for pastors and professors, but why it's crucially important for all of us. Why it has real daily implications in our lives. And, and I hope that while you've seen in our series so far the many real and significant ways that beholding and believing in a God who is limitlessly incomprehensible, a God who's triune, a God who is self-existent and self-sufficient, a God who is unchanging, how those things impact our lives, the reality is, is that the, the attribute that we're going to look at this morning is probably more foundationally influential in our lives than all of those. In fact, it's probably one of the single most important things that we're told about God in the entire Bible, and that it's this, that he is a good father, that he is a good father. When Jesus teaches us how to pray, he begins everything with the, with the language. He says, our father, because what he's trying to help us see is that everything that we know about God, all of those things we've talked about so far in our series, they are all true, but they are all filtered through the lens that he is a good father. They're all filtered through that lens. J.I. Packer, one author, he sums it up this way. He says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls their worship and prayers, their whole outlook on life, it means that they do not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Jesus taught is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God, for father is the Christian's name for God. As we study God's word this morning, here's what I want to show you. Not just 
that the Bible reveals that God reveals himself as a good father. But what I want to show you is that he is the true and better father that all of our earthly dads either point us to or leave us longing for. He is the true and better father that all of our earthly dads point us to or leave us longing for. And it's only when we will behold and believe in his fatherhood that we'll be able to actually become the people he's made us to be. And so with that in mind, let's pray, and then we'll dive into our study this morning. God, we're so grateful for you and for your word. And as we gather today, this Father's Day, God, we pray as we look at your word and as we see how you reveal yourself to us, God, we pray that the reality of your fatherhood might become good news to our hearts this morning. God, and so as you have been throughout our series, we pray that you would keep showing us more of yourself. And where our understanding and where our reasoning finds its limits, God, we pray that you would fill our hearts with faith to believe what is true about you. And God, we ask as well that you might be gracious to soften our hearts and to keep shaping us and molding us so that you might cause us to not just believe what is true, but to live in light of that reality. And so we need you for all that, God, and we pray. Amen. Men. Now, before we dive into our study this morning, I just want to take a moment to acknowledge that the, the term father can be a pretty loaded one for a lot of people these days, because while some of you had great dads who, were, who weren't perfect, but who certainly loved you well and, and who cared for you well, many of you have da- had dads that were absent or would have been better if they were. Maybe they were selfish jerks or abusive or they just ignored you or walked out on you. And so the idea that God talks about himself as a father doesn't really sound like good news to you. In fact, that brings up all kinds of pain and hurt and it brings up these, these emotions that you'd rather, leave in the, you'd rather leave behind. And so I want to begin just by saying that that is not the kind of father that God is. One commentator, I think, so beautifully writes it. She, she said, as one commentator puts it, she said, the good in our earthly dads is but a faint pointer to the true goodness of our heavenly father, and the bad in our earthly dads is a photo negative of who our heavenly father truly is. See, in, in some way, all of our dads point us to something about God, but God is the true and better version of any of the fathers that we have. <laughs> You see, when the Bible describes God as a father, it describes the best kind of father ever, the kind of dad that all of us long for. And we don't have time to cover everything that the Bible has to say about the kind of father that God is. And so what I want to do this morning is just highlight three things that I think are just basement level foundational truths that are so important for you to understand about what kind of a father that God is and and how he is the true and better father that our earthly dads point us to. You see, the first thing is this, is that God is the kind of father who loves unconditionally. He loves unconditionally. I remember before Emma was born, I was, hadn't, obviously, Emma was our first child. I hadn't had any kids. And I remember while Hannah was pregnant with Emma, I remember thinking, I wonder how I'll feel about her. And I know that sounds kind of ridiculous, right, for a parent to think like, I wonder how I'm going to feel about my kid. But for me, when we found out it was a girl, I was like, I don't even know what to do with a little girl. Like, I can play Legos, but that's about like, I don't, what do you do with little girls? I don't know. I don't know. What, how, maybe I'll break it. I don't know what to do with it, you know? And so I remember thinking, I just don't know how I'll feel about her, right? But I remember the very second she was born, the very moment I saw her, I just loved her immediately. 
It wasn't based on anything that she had done or hadn't done. She had not done anything. She just arrived. But I loved her deeply and purely. You see, and I knew that there was nothing that was, even in that moment, I knew that there was nothing that was going to change the way that I felt about her. You see, and the Bible talks about how God's fatherly love is like that, but it's actually even greater than that. Speaking to Christians in, in, in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul, the Apostle Paul, he writes it this way. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. Hear this. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. And in love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus in accordance with his pleasure and good will. Did you, did you catch that in verses 4 and 5? He says, he chose you before the creation of the world. He predestined you for adoption to sonship. What these verses are saying is that God chose to love you and set his affections on you before you existed. My love for Emma came when she began. What the Bible is saying is that God's, God's unconditional love comes before you even exist. You see, his love is unconditional and that's not just a New Testament thing either. You read in Deuteronomy, God's speaking to the Israelites. He says it this way in chapter 7. He says, For you are a people holy to the Lord God, and for the Lord has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possessions. Hear this. The Lord didn't set his affections on you or choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, or for you, in fact, were the fewest of all. The chapter goes on, and what you see throughout Deuteronomy chapter 7 is that God's telling the Israelites, I didn't love you because of you. He says, I simply chose to love you. See, I cannot be more clear about this. God's love and affection for you is not based on your performance or lack thereof. You see, and that's because God is a father, not an employer. You see, so many of us slip into relating to God like he's a boss, not like he is a father. And that changes everything. You see, the, the difference between a family relationship and a business relationship is that even the best business relationships are always conditional in some way. You see, as long as you do your job or you hold up your end of the contract, then things are good, right? Everyone is happy. But if you don't perform, eventually that relationship will always end because it is a conditional relationship. It's based on your performance and what you do. But the Bible says that that's not how God chooses to relate to you. See, God relates to us not on the basis of what we do for him. He relates to us on the basis of who we are to him. And if you put your faith in Jesus to be your forgiver and your leader, then what the Bible says is that the, God, that the Father God, he sees you and loves you like he sees and loves Jesus himself. Amen. And that he's committed to loving you as he, just as he's committed to loving his own son. You see, so God's love is unconditional. It's not contingent on what you do. But it's so important that you understand this. God's love is not indifferent to what you do. It's not conditional based on what you do, but he is not, certainly not indifferent to what you do. And that brings us to the, to the second thing I want to show you about the kind of father that God is, and it's this, is that God is the kind of father who disciplines compassionately. 
Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11, 12, he, he's, the, the writer says it this way. He says, my son, don't despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father disciplines the son that he delights in. See, we live in a world where, where unconditional love is defined as the idea that you accept and affirm everything about someone without any questions. But I would argue that that's not actually love at all. That's actually indifference. And God's unconditional love certainly does not function like that. You see, while God's love is not contingent on what we do, he's not indifferent to what we do. God is not some detached parent who is, who is just permissive, lets you do whatever you want. He never lays down any standards. He never confronts you. You see, the, the Bible is clear that God gets angry when we sin and when we disobey. Becky Pippert, one author, she writes it this way. She says, if God were not angry over how we are destroying ourselves, then he wouldn't be good. And he certainly wouldn't be loving, for anger is, the anger is not the opposite of love. Hate is, and the final form of hate is indifference. You see, an unquestioning, absolute affirmation and approval of anything and everyone about someone, that is not love, that is indifference. Real love gets angry when someone is hurting themselves. But here's the thing that you have to see. God's anger towards our sin, it does not boil over into a kind of discipline that is punitive or retaliatory. Instead, his discipline is always characterized by compassion and grace. He says it this way, the, the, the writer of Psalm 103 says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious. He is slow to anger and abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. Verse 10, he does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who revere him. See, the reality is that because you and I are sinners, very often as parents, our discipline is ultimately really about us. When our kids have refused to obey or when they've embarrassed us or just honestly sometimes inconvenienced us, it can be easy, it can be very natural for us to kind of want to pay that back to them, right? You embarrassed me, so I'm going to embarrass you. Right? You hurt my feelings, so I want to hurt your feelings. You made me uncomfortable, so I'm going to make you uncomfortable, it can be very natural for us to want to respond that kind of way. But what you have to see is that in the Bible, the Bible says that God never responds like that. He never responds like that. His anger doesn't boil over into paying us back. Verse 10, it said, he doesn't treat us like our sinful rebellion deserves to be treated. Instead, it says he is abounding in love. He is slow to anger. He is compassionate and gracious. And what that doesn't mean is that he just ignores our sin, but what it does mean is that his discipline is always, always for your good. Always for your good. 
Tim Keller, one pastor, he puts it this way. He says, when God disciplines, when he lets bad things happen to you, when he sees that you are doing something wrong and he lets some of the consequences of your actions come through and lets you feel those things, what you can know is that he is not handling you roughly. It is his fatherly love for you that is allowing it. It is never payback, for he has never abandoned you and he never will. He is working all things together for good. He goes on. The truth is that we all desperately need someone like that. We need a God who is emotionally involved enough to get angry with our sin, but to do so unselfishly, with no desire to wreak vengeance or retribution. And we need that more than anything. And what God says is that I have it for you, because I'm a good See, and so God's love is not just unconditional, but is discipline and is compassionate, our is discipline is compassionate and gracious. He does not treat us like we deserve to be treated. But you need to see as well is that God, God's not just a father who doesn't give us the punishments we deserve. He's the kind of father who graciously, abundantly, generously gives us all kinds of things we do not deserve. And that's the third thing I want to show you this morning, is that God is the kind of Father who gives generously. Who gives generously. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus speaking to a crowd, he says, Which of you, if your sons ask you for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks you for fish, will give him a snake? If you, then though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give you good gifts to those who ask for it? I don't know about you, but I remember as a kid that adults, they always tell you that giving is better than receiving. And as a kid, I always thought to myself, I doubt it, right? <laughs> I don't think so, Mm-mm. right? And then when you have kids yourself and you see them open a gift and you see the joy that is on their face, what you're like, ah, oh, dang it, they were right again. Every time, dang it, right? You see, the reason why that's true is because you and I are made in God's image. And God is not stingy. He is not stingy with his love. He is not stingy with his resources. He never withholds good things from us. And you can be sure that that is true because he was not stingy and did not withhold even his very own son from you. Romans chapter 8, verse 32, Apostle Paul again, he writes, For he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Paul is saying, if God did not withhold even his own son from you, you can have an unshakable confidence that there is nothing good he would withhold from you. There's nothing good he would withhold from you. See, and the reality is is that when you behold and believe in a fatherly God like that, it transforms you. 
It changes you. It's not just some theological idea that you can agree with. That changes you dramatically. First, it, it transforms your vertical relationship with God. Because if you believe that God is a father who loves you unconditionally, then when you sin, what you have to do is you don't run and hide from him, but you run towards him. And you can be completely honest with him, and you don't have to come to him fearfully. Instead, you can come to him confident and not wondering if he's going to receive you, but instead like a, a child who runs to their parents with arms wide open because they know that they will not be turned away. One of my favorite things is when I get home from work or when my kids get home from school and I'm sitting in my office downstairs. One of my favorite things is how they drop everything and run to me. My son, Caleb, <laughs> often when I'm sitting in my office, he'll come home, he quietly opens the door, and he just kind of like shimmies his way onto my lap. I'm working, he's, often he doesn't even talk. He just comes and shimmies his way onto my lap. He just hangs out with me. What my kids know is that while I might tell them that I need to keep working, I will never turn them away. They are always welcome with me. See, and if you believe that God's love for you is unconditional, then you will know that you are always welcome with him in his presence. And that radically changes you. And if you believe that God is a father who disciplines you compassionately, then you can be confident that whatever he has allowed into your life is not some kind of punitive retribution for something you've done or haven't done, but instead it is a loving and compassionate discipline. You can know that his discipline does not mean that he is farther away from you than you thought that he was, but in fact that as a loving father who cares about you, he is pressing into your life. Not running away, but pressing into the difficult things. And his arms are wide open so that you might come in humility back to him, the one who can provide for what you need. And that's the third thing. If you believe that God is a generous father, then what happens is that you will come to him with your needs. And you won't be shy. You won't be only asking. You won't think, well, I haven't really been good this week. I've really not been following the things I should be doing. I haven't been X, Y, or Z, so I guess I can't really come to God and ask him for things that I need. No, you'll come to him. And you'll know that if he doesn't give you something that you ask for, if his timing is not your timing, that that's not a statement about your value and worth to him. Because you know that he would not withhold any good thing from you. And when you see God being generous to you, what happens is you know that all of it is an unmerited gift. And so you hold it loosely, and instead of worshiping the gifts, you worship the giver instead. And you only do that if you know that God is a good father. You see, but knowing God as a good father doesn't just change your vertical relationship with him. It changes you internally as well. You see, it uproots the idols of approval and control and power and comfort. You see, the more you believe and know that God is, that, that you are loved and approved of by the true and better Father, that His opinion of you is ultimately high and that it is relentlessly secure, the more you'll be able to take criticism and endure the loss of a, approval of friends or coworkers or family because what you realize is you have the approval of the King of the universe. 
And you won't need to run to other people or things for comfort. Instead, you'll run to the arms of your good heavenly father because you know that he not only knows what you need, but he longs to comfort you in your needs. And you won't need to be in control or to have power over people and situations because you know that your heavenly father is the great king and creator of the universe. And that like Romans tells us, he is working all things together for your good. And so you can let him be the one who is in control. And you can let him be the one whose power and authority are enough for you. And you can let those things go. Additionally, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells that, that believing that God is our father, that that's actually the cure for anxiety and worry. That's the antidote for those things. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says it this way. He says, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body or what you will wear. He says, look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Hear this. He says, are you not much, much more valuable than they are? He says, so don't worry. For the pagans run after all these things, but your heavenly Father knows you need them. What Jesus is saying is that the antidote for worry is to increasingly know the fatherly love of God. It is the antidote. See, when my kids are worried or afraid or when they need something, they come to me. And they crawl in my lap, teary-eyed, or they come running to asking for help because what they know is that I can take care of them. And Jesus is saying is that God is like that, but his ability to provide for and to care for us, unlike my own, has no limits. You see, I can't always provide the things that my kids are asking me for, but God can. And I can't always fix the broken things that they bring to me, but God can. And I cannot always heal the hurts that they have, but God can. And when you know that he is loving and generous, not just in general, but for you, towards you, then what happens is it puts fear and anxiety and worry to flight. Because you know that he is a good father who cares for you. And the more that reality sinks deeply into your heart, the more fear and worry and anxiety will run. You see, and so beholding and believing in the fatherhood of God, it transforms us internally, transforms our vertical relationship with God. But third, and I think so importantly, it transforms our horizontal relationships with people. First, I think it transforms your relationship with your own parents. See, when you see that God is the true and better father, that frees you from both dependence on and anger towards your own parents. See, every little kid, they want the approval of their parents, and there's nothing wrong with that, right? But some of you are here this morning, and you are still ruled. You are ruled by the need for the approval of your parents. All of your decisions about money and career, about marriage and about kids, about where you live and what you do, and all of it is a desire to have the approval of your parents, And the reality is that regardless of whether your parents are generous or stingy with their approval, what you know deep down is that it's always never enough, right? You know that, don't you? You see, no matter how many times they tell you or how much they are proud of you, it is always going to come up a little bit short because they do not actually have the approval you're looking for. 
See, you are looking for an approval of which there is no higher authority. You are looking for an ultimate approval. You're looking for a word about you that cannot change and an opinion about you that is of the highest rank and your parents can't give it to you. Only God can give that to you. And the good news is that in Christ, God approves of you. And the Father's words about Jesus when he says, this is my son, I'm well pleased with him. Those become true about you through faith in Jesus. And it's his approval of you that frees you from this crippling need for the approval of your own parents. And similarly, knowing God is your true and better father and enables you to forgive your parents for all the ways that they fell short in their own parental love for you. See, some of you, Mother's Day and Father's Day are really difficult. They are especially hard holidays because you are still deeply angry and deeply bitter with your own parents. And I'm not saying that you should just ignore or write off the ways that you were hurt or sinned against. I'm not trying to minimize or disregard or, or just say that that doesn't matter. I'm not saying that. But I am saying is that when you have the love and approval of God the Father, that's the only way you're actually able to forgive. Because what, you, what happens is when you have his approval and love, you don't capital and need that from someone else. When you need that from your parents, when it's the thing that is the capital N need in your life, when you're looking for, to them to be the one that gives it to you or to someone else, it doesn't even matter. What happens is that like, you, you can never forgive them if they wound you. But instead, if you receive the kind of love and approval that you are looking for from God, that frees you because you don't need something from someone else anymore. It frees you to forgive. See, his love and approval, they fill up your heart so that you're free to forgive those whose lack of love and approval has been so painful. But it doesn't just affect seeing the fatherly love of God. It doesn't just affect your relationship with your own parents. As a parent, it affects your relationship with your kids. See, parents, you have, an incredibly, you have an incredible responsibility and opportunity to reflect God to your kids. And I don't want to diminish or minimize the role of moms in any way, shape, or form this morning, but I want to take a moment just to speak to the fathers who are here. Maybe you are a dad. Maybe you hope to be one someday. And I need you to hear this. Here's the deal. The way that your children view God is directly connected with the way they view you. The way your children view God is directly influenced, directly connected with the way that they view you. It's just how it is. And the only way for you to show them the fatherly love of God is for you to know it yourself. It's for you to know it yourself. And if you are not believing that God is your good father to you, if your heart is not being filled up with his unconditional love, his compassionate discipline, his generous resources for you, then your love will in some ways, it will always drift back towards being conditional and your anger and your discipline will always end up being selfish and, and retributive and you won't be characterized by one who is generous. Instead, you'll use your generosity as a, as a weight and as leverage to get something back and that's not God. God's generosity. And so as we celebrate Father's Day, I want to encourage you to ask yourself, those of you who are fathers, those of you who want to be dads, I want to ask you, what is your fatherly leadership in your kids' lives teaching them about God? 
Is it showing them that their heavenly Father's love is conditional, that it's based on what they do, or is it showing them that the heavenly Father's love like yours is unconditional, that it's based not on what they do, but on who they are to you? What is your discipline showing them about the Father's discipline? Is your own discipline non-existent or disengaged, or is it apathetic? Do you find primarily that the way you discipline your kids is ultimately about you, that it's selfish or that it's retributive or retaliatory and what you're showing them is that the Heavenly Father doesn't care enough to actually be involved in their lives or is chiefly concerned with himself and not them? Or is your discipline towards your kids, is it compassionate and gracious? Does it point them to a Heavenly Father who loves them enough to correct them? And his correction is an overflow of his compassion, grace, and love for them. It's not payback. I'll just tell you this. One of the best ways that you can tell if your discipline is like the Father's is by what you use to motivate your kids. One of the best ways that you can tell if your discipline is like God's discipline is by asking the question, how, what, what do you motivate your kids towards obedience with? You see, God always motivates us towards obedience with love. His generous, his sacrificial, his abundant love. He never uses fear and he never uses shame. Never. You see, for me, just a few weeks ago, I remember I was reading, I've been reading a book with a couple of guys in my small group and we've been talking about the character of God and one of the things in the, that the book was talking about was just was about this idea about how God is endlessly tender and compassionate with us. That he doesn't use fear and guilt and shame to motivate us. And what I was realizing is that in the past few weeks with my own son, I had been using shame to motivate him. And when he ignored me or when he disobeyed, I would say, kid, you're six years old, can't you figure it out by now? You know better than this. As God was reminding me in that conversation with my friends about his fatherly compassion towards me, he was inviting me as well to show that kind of fatherly compassion towards my own son. And so I had to go to him that night as I was putting him down for bed. And I needed to apologize to him because I said, Caleb, I, I have not treated you the way you deserve. And I want you to know that I love you no matter what you do. And I never want to use fear and shame to motivate you. And he's six, and he had already moved on. And so he's like, <laughs> and so he's like okay. Love you, Dad. Sleep good. You know, just moved on. And sometimes that's how it is. But what I want my kids to know, not just in one moment, but over a lifetime of consistency, is I want them to be motivated by love. It's my love for them, unconditional, that motivates a joyful obedience. Because that's the way God does it with us. He wants us to know it is that it's his unconditional love for us 
That's what motivates. That's what empowers. That's what fuels our obedience for him. Not fear, not shame, not guilt. See, and lastly, as we reflect the character of God to our kids, we have to ask the question, are you generous with your kids or stingy? And I'm not talking about Christmas presents. Are you generous with your time? Are you generous with your affection? Are you generous with your things? Are you generous with your very heart for them? Kids are not dumb. They're not dumb. They can tell if you are characterized by a generosity of yourself with them. You see, and the reason why we're called to that kind of a generosity with our kids, not just a financial generosity towards them, is because God is that kind of generous with us. He doesn't just give us things, he gives us himself. You see, and so the fatherly love of God, it transforms your relationship with your parents and your relationship as parents with your kids, but it also transforms your relationship with others with your friends and your neighbors and your coworkers, because the reality is that the more that you know and believe in God's fatherly love for you, the more you will begin to love others who are who to love others in the same way. And you look at people that God has put around you, and what happens is you start to see them not as people who are different than you, not as people who who are somehow opposed to you, but you see them as the lost children of God who do not know yet how much their heavenly Father loves them. And you'll long for them to know him as the true and better father that you have come to know. And when they are jerks and when they take you for granted, what you will remember is that at one time you treated God in the exact same way. And yet his love for you was relentlessly persistent. And that'll fuel up your love for others as you seek to love those who are hard to love and show them the fatherly love of God. Here's the thing, let me wrap up. I know we're going long this morning. The only way that you live like that, the only way that your relationship with God and your relationship internally and your relationship with others is transformed like that, the only way that happens is when you know the heart, the fatherly heart of God for you. It's the only way you know it. When you believe that you are, that you're true and better, that he is the true and better heavenly father that you are longing for. And the only way that you can know him as that your heavenly father is through the person and the work of Jesus. You see, throughout the scriptures what we see is that Jesus not only reveals the character and nature of the father, Hebrews tells us he is the the exact imprint, the the very nature of God. But Jesus as well doesn't just show us the very character of of the Father. He He doesn't just show us what the Father is like. He is the way that you experience the love of the Father yourself. Galatians chapter 4 says it this way, but when the set time had fully come, that God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. And because you are his sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, and the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father, so that you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. You see, and what Paul's saying there in Galatians chapter 4 is that Jesus pays the penalty that our sinful rebellion deserves and so that he might redeem us and so that God can treat us in the way that Jesus deserves, not the way that we deserve. 
On the cross, what you see is that Jesus loses his sonship so that you and I might gain it. He trades places with us so that by faith in him, we might become God's adopted children. See, and that's a big part of what we're remembering and celebrating every week when we take communion. At Jesus' death on the cross in our place, it not just pays the penalty for our sins, it is the means by which we are adopted into God's family. And so communion doesn't make you right with God and it doesn't save you. The Bible is clear that faith in Jesus alone does that. Instead, communion is a chance for us to remember that God did not withhold even his son from you so that you might become his adopted child. And that you might not just know him as a father, but that you might know him as the father, as your father. The true and better father that you are longing for. And so if you've trusted Jesus and believed the gospel, or if you do for the first time this morning, then during our time of worship, I want to encourage you, go back and take communion. There's a table on the left and on the right, and you can dip the bread in the juice and take communion that way back and whenever you feel fit or... But if you're here today and you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus, you're not really sure what you think about him or what it means to have a relationship with God, then I want you to know, I want to just be abundantly clear, you are so welcome here. And your doubts are welcome and your questions are welcome. But I want to encourage you, hold off on taking communion. God is not after religious rituals and going through the motions. What he's after is a heart that relates to him on the basis not of what you do for him but on the basis of who you are to him. And that only changes through faith in the person and the work of Jesus. So as we sing and as we worship and as we remember the gospel together in song this morning, I want to encourage you to talk with God. Some of you are here and you relate to God not like a father, but instead like a stranger. And you have no reason to believe that he might hear you, let alone love you. Others of you are here and you relate to God like he's an employer. And you've always, you always have or you keep falling back into this pattern of relating to him on the basis of kind of like a boss where his approval is conditional based on your performance. But I need to remind you again, if you have put your faith in Jesus or if you do for the first time, then God is not either of those things to you. He instead is a good and loving father. And I want to encourage you to ask him to pour out his fatherly love into your heart by his spirit. That's what he wants to do. You don't reason your way into the fatherly love of God. He pours his love out, Romans 8 tells us, through his spirit so that you might not just know about him, but that you might experience his fatherly love, his compassionate discipline, and his rich generosity. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for our time together in your word. And we're grateful for you. And we're grateful for the reminder this morning, God, that you are not a stranger or a boss, but you indeed are a good and loving Father. And so, God, uh, that is often hard for us to believe. And so we need you by your Spirit to cause our hearts to believe that that's true. Not just to know it as a fact, but to experience your fatherly love and affection for us. 
We pray, God, that that might not just transform our relationship with you, but it would transform our relationship with our own parents, that it might free us from the need for their uh, approval or, uh, or the anger and bitterness we have for them, that it might transform the way we relate to our own kids and might enable us to reflect your fatherly love and compassion for them, and it might enable us to love others in our neighborhoods, with our coworkers and our families as with your kind of love. And so for all of that to happen, we need you to transform us, Jesus. And we pray that you would, God, for our good and for your glory, we pray. Amen.